Greetings and welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason. We get together here every week and discuss issues impacting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. That's right. It is the Business of Agriculture. Thanks for joining me. This is our first ever in the history of the Business of Agriculture podcast of doing a swap cast. That's right. It's a swap cast with special guest, special co-host, if you will, Casey Seymour of the Moving Iron podcast. You might know Casey. He's been on my podcast before. He's a sales manager with uh, 21st Century Equipment out in western Nebraska. He's a sales manager. They have 16 locations. They're a John Deere dealership there in the western plains and uh, mountain states. He's also a client of mine. He hosts a Moving Iron Summit where machinery dealers and auction companies and whatnot get together every year and discuss the goings-on behind the scenes and, and in the scenes movements of machinery sales. So he's a great dude. He's a client. He's a podcast host. He's been one of my guests before, and he is my Swapcast co-host. Casey Seymour, tell us more about yourself, and thanks for doing this. Oh, man, thanks for having, having me on here and teaming up and do this thing. It makes my life pretty easy when we can uh, crank out, you know, kill two birds with one stone when it comes to putting out podcasts. But, but yeah, Damon, thanks for being on. It's a pleasure. It's, uh, it's great to have you at the Moving Iron Summit there. Um, everybody uh, really enjoyed your both your both your talks you put on and, and uh, if you guys are anyone out there looking for a, a good speaker or probably even an MC to some extent I'm sure Damien would be a great guy to get out there so very very uh, topical stuff and sprinkles in a little humor to go along with it so you can't beat that stick. Yeah, that's what I've been doing for a long time, and I was really glad to get in front of your crowd because I do machinery groups, I do equipment groups, but I don't do tons of them because it's not my expertise the way it is your expertise. You're the machinery guy, but what I liked best was I already was prepared to talk about the future of agriculture, the future of food, uh, the future of farming, the future of even your own business. And then you and I went and had a beer uh, the night before my second program. And we talked through some of the finer points of that. And what I really liked was that you, unlike some people in this business, uh, are very open <laughs> about, about what's happening. Uh, consolidations about rapid technology and innovation moves, about um, large-scale farmers expansion and it uh, changing the numbers in the middle, about some of those things. So I think that's what we're gonna cover today, uh, dear listener, is we're gonna talk about the reality of this business as it relates to you, but from the viewpoint of me who travels North America at these various agricultural meetings and from Casey Seymour, who is on the ground uh, with very, very perceptive vision from the machinery sales standpoint. So Casey, talk about the future. That's kind of what you and I did. Is that something like what we should cover? Yeah, I think so, man. I think the, the future of agriculture is a, it's as, it's as exciting as it is scary, I think, to some extent. Uh, that's the way I think you could probably wrap it up in a nutshell. Um, from everything from just the way that the public perceives um, food production all the way through um, how machines are going to interlink with that and, and what that looks like. You know, there's, there's so many new technologies that are that are popping up all over the place. It's the amount of money that's coming out of Silicon Valley um, to you know all these different startups, these data companies, um, all the way through robotics and autonomous vehicles and the stuff that you see out there, it is uh, quite mind blowing what what uh, what is a what is coming down the pipeline. 
Yeah, so let's kind of just kind of think about that because since you host the Moving Iron uh, podcast and the Moving Iron Summit, which again is a bunch of machinery people getting together and just really discussing the business and what you're going to do to stay competitive. You know, I talk a lot about reinvention and I was really happy because some people don't like the discussion that might be uh, hard about their own future. And I said, Casey, uh, you're a John Deere dealer. I mean, everybody knows that if they keep up with your stuff, but it doesn't matter. Case IH, uh, Agco, John Deere. There's one thing that's been going on since I was a little kid. Here in Huntington, Indiana, we had uh, a case dealer. We had a John Deere dealer. We had IH dealer. And then a few miles outside of town, we had a white dealer. Uh, now there's two dealerships, and I'm wondering when the day comes there won't even be any. Um, consolidation of manufacturers has been going on for a long, long time. Consolidation of their dealership. John Deere uh, has forced uh, some consolidation. I'm sure the other companies have as well. They want there to be a lot less of these single individual storefronts out there. But this is just the bigger story encapsulated. Consolidation has been going on for a long, long time in this industry in just about everything. Am I right? Oh, yeah. I mean, everything from, you know, in the was it the mid nineties? A lot of the co-ops started to, to uh, consolidate. And then you have uh, mass consolidate consolidation right now with you look at feedlots and dairies and, and farming operations and, and all that stuff. Um, it's not unique to the, the equipment industry. And as the number of farmers uh, decrease, but the same number of acres become um, are being farmed there, there will be less everything. There'll be less farms. There'll be less, feedlots, there'll be less dairies. I mean, they'll just be bigger, you know what I mean? And it's going to be, so, so your actual touch point, your actual customer touch point is going to streak along with that. Well, I'm writing a book and, and your listeners don't know this. Mine have barely been tipped off because I've been really kind of uh, working on it. My, my, my last book just came out in April called Do Business Better. I've got a book in the works that uh, looks like it's going to be released by the second week of December is the plan right now. I'm, I'm hustling along through the printers right now. It's called Food Fear. Uh, and it's, it's about, it's an agriculturalist perspective, but it's how fear is ruining our dinner and why we should celebrate eating. So it's an agriculturalist perspective because that's what I am. And I'm giving it from the, the consumer standpoint to the farmer standpoint, to the history of farming, to how farming and agriculture has changed every human on earth and is really the responsible, uh, the responsible industry for uh, human evolution. I mean, our, our ability to have the technology we have today is because somebody got really good at making food. So I talk a lot about that. And one of the things you've already talked about was less farmers. And that's one of my things I do in my presentation that, again, some folks don't want to hear, but it's been the reality. We hit peak farm, peak farm and peak farmers. There was about six and a half million farms in uh, 1935. And today there's a 2 million farms in the United States. And there's people, Casey, would say, oh, that's just so tragic. We've lost all these farms. Let's not pretend 1935 was happy, Phil, out here in, the, in, rural, in rural America. You had the Dust Bowl, you had the Depression, you had uh, boatloads of uh, bovine and uh, swine diseases, and you had kids that were dying and getting polio. So this idea that less farmers and less farms is somehow bad actually for society as a whole, it's been going on for a long time. And also let's not look back with rose colored lenses. 1935 was nobody's uh, paradise. Right. Well, that's, and it's not, you know, let's not pretend like it's some 
little nuance here that it's only in agriculture. You take a look at the number of gas stations that were available in 1935 compared to what you see now. I mean, there, it's, everything is, is consolidated and, and, and shrunk down to a, just a few, a few operators out there that are, that are running that. And it's continued to do that. Okay, as the market so- share gets, it grows and everybody else jumps in on it. Yeah. And what's also uh, the reality is that's when we're talking about commodity production. You know, one could look at computers. You and I are using our computers right now to record this podcast. There was the golden era of computerization when it was still a question of, do we even need these? Or do we even need these in our schools? Who would ever want one of these in their home? That was the 1970s. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was a little boy when the Apple II uh, uh, was a, a computer that came to our grade school. And uh, I remember distinctly because then it was the Apple II E. I think the E may have stood for education. I don't know, but I know that uh, distinctly it was being advertised on Monday Night Football and Don Meredith uh, on ABC was drunk and he called it the Apple IIE because it was Roman numerals. Uh, <laughs> okay, so, so fast, forward, fast forward 35 years and we've gone from the Apple IIE, as Don Meredith called it, to uh, computers are ubiquitous. We all have them and also I'm using an Apple, but there's a lot of companies that went away. I don't know if Gateway still exists anymore. I don't know if Dell still exists. I don't know if, uh, start naming, you know, Compaq, and I can go through just boatloads, IBM, name them companies. Once you become not new technology, uh, even computers, laptops are somewhat now moving into commodity uh, territory. There's just going to be a consolidation. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, you know, there's no different than what you've seen with, you know, the whole, uh, when I was in high school, it was the big thing. Um, as online stores kind of started to come on the whole idea of buying online and I mean, Barnes and Noble or somebody that had the whole click and brick was there, was there uh, kind of marketing plan where you needed to have as much stuff in brick and mortar as you did online because, uh, you know, not everybody wanted to buy online and not everybody wanted to buy in store and trying to be, all things to all people. It didn't work, didn't work out very well for them. Um, they went through a pretty good shock on that. But, you know, I think as you look across the landscape, to your point about technology in general, that's what drives a lot of this change. Um, very little happens in change where there's not some level of new technology that comes along with it. It might not be, you know, a computer or an iPad or an Android tablet or something like that. That's the technology side of it. It could be as simple as some new mechanization that, that comes down the line that, you know, increases efficiency i.e. the cotton gin, you know what I mean? Stuff like that, that completely changed uh, and revolutionized the way people do business. All right. So you said the cotton gin, which brings me back to farm machinery, which is really uh, your expertise. You're, you're, you're beyond that. You keep up with a lot of stuff. You read, so do I. You keep up with um, the business of agriculture. And so as you look at that, Casey, uh, I see less farmers. I see the roughly the same amount of farms. My research based on the 2017 National Agriculture Statistics Service Census of Agriculture says that we actually only saw increases in two categories in terms of the number of farms, and that is in the very large. Right now, the very large farms uh, are only about 4% of the farms, but they control 58% of the acres. Now, you and I both know that that's, yeah, yeah, you've got people out there that are farming 10,000, 20,000 acres, whatever. Um, but uh, there was a, also an increase on the very small, meaning like these folks that are under 10 acres, which tells me there is still room for somebody to make a living because I'm not opposed to anybody that can figure out a way to make a living in the business of agriculture. I see niche and specialty and small having a nice run as long as the folks that do it are creative 
and and do cultivate their niche. And then once a niche gets to where it's very accepted, it starts moving into a commodity realm. You know, organic food is still somewhere in that small to niche, but it's also, let's not kid ourselves, Del Monte uh, has organic food production and uh, very large, very large scale production uh, on, on organic side. Yeah. But those are the only two growth categories was in the very large and then the small The middle's getting squeezed. The person that uh, is out there with a, uh, uh, a small size combine. And you talked to me about this when we were together in Nashville, they are, uh, they're, they're having a hard time. They're, they're on that wrong size. Is that the right word? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the thing about combines and, and especially when you start looking at the smaller farmers that we run into and a lot of these smaller farmers that we run into on, and I say small farm, it, depending on the part of the world, that's a, that's a different number for different people. Right. If I say 3000 acre farm out here, that's an average size farm, you know, uh, yeah, if, if you, put three, that, you put a 3,000 acre farmer in Vermont, it's going to be like something crazy. And not that there's right. not large agriculture in Vermont, but that's like uh, there's bigger dairies, but also, yeah, same, same thing. Yes. So small is different regionally, right? Right. So and when I'm, when I'm talking about the small farm, I'm looking at the small row crop guy and the smaller row crop guy. And when you start looking at the cost associated with machinery, whether it's new or used or whatever it is, and a combine is a great example of that. Um, it, it comes to a point where there is no matter how much you want to upgrade, there's just the dollars don't make sense across the number of acres you have to cover. And as that number continues to grow every year and, and the size of machinery gets bigger every year and, and all the things that come along with that, it's harder and harder for the guy in the middle to function on what we see out there. And with it being the 2013 through 2019, you know, here we are, the downturn that we've had, there was a fresh amount of used equipment coming to the marketplace all the time, right? Because everybody was buying new. You guys that had money, they were out buying new. And there was a pretty steady supply of, of used equipment coming that was good quality stuff. What we're seeing now is that the typical two-year trade cycle got stretched to three, got stretched to five, you know, and sometimes even six. And now what we're seeing hit the marketplace is a bunch of machinery that is uh, five or six years old and it's got way more hours as an associated per year type of hour range than we've seen in the past. And that's really going to cause a problem with some of these guys that are want, that want to trade. The, the used piece that they want may not be available just out of sheer supply and demand because there weren't that many new ones made. And, and now, like I said earlier, you know, the, the market's being flooded with higher hour and older stuff. And that's going to have a, have a ripple effect across kind of the outcome of what we see happen towards the end of the year in the auction market. Speaking of that, so we talked about consolidation, <laughs> what that really does. And because the person saying, well, what's consolidation got to do with combines? Um, well, first off, we've got a hell of a lot of combines out in the countryside. <laughs> we, oh, yeah. we frankly, we have a lot of machinery. In fact, you told me that the Moving Iron Summit was begun by people that were really just looking at what are we going to do with this glut of used inventory with farm equipment? And yeah. it's something that the reality of the marketplace, all of us need to adjust and say, all right, when things are really humming, it looks like this. When things are not really humming, it looks like that. So correct me if I'm wrong here. What consolidation does is it, it means that the equipment changes because of the operation size. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, you know, if you add a combine to your operation, you're not, you're not just adding a combine. You're probably adding some other support equipment to go along with that. Might be another grain cart, might be another semi and, and grain trailer. It could be any number of things that go along with that. And as these, the, the thing that I that I'm really focused on trying to figure out the most of is as being a used equipment guy and, and and looking at the equipment marketplace as a whole. You know, as you as you look back and you see what's going on, as these farmers get bigger, they also displace the same. And I'm, displace is probably a bad word, but 
Farmer John over here retires, and but Farmer John was also um, buying the big guy's trading pieces. Well, big, Farmer John's not in business anymore because the big guy now absorbed him too. So now what do I do with, with that used equipment when it comes in? Yeah, wh where do you take a two to five-year-old piece of machinery that still has a lot of value, it still is completely mm -hmm. applicable? Uh, I could run out here and be a smaller scale operator and use it for the next seven years, five years, three years, whatever. And now you just got rid of a, uh, while you said, well, we still, we're still selling big equipment to this operation. You also lost another customer and it's yeah. not because of anything mean. It wasn't because of we were conspiring against them. It's just because the economics didn't work for him. And so he, he left the marketplace. Yep. And I think for me, when you look at where you're going to take that stuff, honestly, as that smaller group grows, I mean, there's going to be some opportunities there to do some stuff with. I don't know that you're ever going to sell a big combine to somebody like that, but there's not to say that five or six or seven of those guys don't go together and buy one combine. And then they just use that across their smaller acreages. The biggest opportunity we have in the world to sell used equipment is in Eastern Europe and Africa. I mean, those are going to be your best places. Now, you got obviously have some issues there when it comes to funding and wars and corruption and everything else that goes along with that. But as far as tillable ground goes and actual farm production goes, that is where the next big boom is going to come. Yeah, well, they need they need the equipment, they need modernization, and they modernization for them could be a ten year piece of equipment here. Absolutely, it could be a forty four forty. Be quite frank with um, you, I mean, it's it can easily be that. Hey, hey, your listeners understand what that is. For my listeners, what's a forty four forty? John Deere real crop tractor. It was manufactured in the seventies. Seventies. As I was saying, nineteen seventy nine. I when I think yeah. of it, I think of about nineteen seventy nine. It's got the yeah. rounded, it's got the awesome looking cab with the rounded uh, front cab there. Yeah. Hey. Okay, let's look about the future and let's talk about equipment. One thing that I talk a lot about is reinvention and everybody has to do it. Article in the Wall Street Journal about a week or so ago, John Deere, obviously you're involved. Uh, when things got a little bit uh, slow in ag, they decided to move equipment to keep the factories open. They're going to lease the hell out of everything. So they leased and they leased and they leased. And it's not it's not going to work out good for them. Explain what happens when uh, you, basically it was kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul, wasn't it? Oh, I think to some extent there was a little bit of that. Um, I mean, every manufacturer jumped on the leasing train, man. That was that was all over the place. Um, and we saw something similar to this happen in the '90s, late '80s, early '90s. Where there's another big kind of leasing boom that happened there. Really, what's driving that more than anything, and even the residual effects of leasing too, is, is cost of operation, right? So instead of having a four hundred thousand dollar combine and making five equal payments on that four hundred thousand dollar combine at eighty thousand dollars a pop, you're going to look at what the lease structure looks like, and that might be sixty thousand dollars a year instead. $80,000 a year, right? So there's a there's an option to buy that at the end and you can take that money and you can kind of hedge your crop, you know, hedge your, hedge your piece of iron there. You can look at it and say, I'm going to turn it back in, get a new one or buy the one I got. You know what I'm saying? So there's a million things you can do with it. If the residual value is upside down comparatively to what the market value says it's worth, you know, you have a dead asset and you send it back to wherever it goes, it's not your problem. If you have some equity in it, buy that piece of equipment, trade it in and, and capitalize on your equity. So I think there's there's options there. I don't know that Robin Peter to pay Paul is probably the right right scenario, but what it did do is it did open the, the floodgates, I guess, for used equipment between case, you know, CNH deer. You know, Agco, what you see out there with they, what they've been doing, there has been a lot of used equipment being developed because of that and not so much on your trip, typical trade cycle. Yeah, that's what the gist of the article was. I, Rob and Peter Paypal was more about my point was they got rid of equipment today, but it created a tremendous glut of used machinery three, two to four years down the road. Yeah. And I, 
yeah, you could probably argue either way that would that that probably wouldn't have been there if the leasing wouldn't have been as aggressive as it was. Um, I mean, everybody jumped on that to, to move machines, and that was the easiest way for them to do it. It was just sure. to make a cheaper payment. Hey, we talk about the future, and that was one of the things we really got going on. And the future, from you know your eyes as a as a equipment guy, and the future from my eyes, talked about less dealers, talked about less farmers, and I said I started with Goodness Road less commodity. I don't mean there's going to be less commodity produced, but I point out something that as, as the prime acres get really, really good, let's say your person that is a 10,000 acre operator and they are the ones that buy your big equipment, they might have the best of the land. I see the commodity production moving more and more into big, uh, efficient operators and the lesser operations that are on uh, lesser land I don't even know where it goes. I'll give you an example. Uh, my podcast, if you're listening to this, it was my episode about hay. Guy in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan grows hay, but there's going to be less demand for Timothy Hay if the horse market goes away, and then certainly for horse racing because horse racing is less popular because the animal rights activists said, so you're in Upper Peninsula of Michigan. You get one cutting of hay per year. It's Timothy. You got a truck a long way. If his stops making sense financially, where do those acres go? Well, they don't go into corn or soybeans or wheat. Uh, they might just revert to pine forest. <laughs> so I've Good. been coming up with this scenario that you're still going to be selling machinery, but I wonder what kind of machinery we're going to need if some of these mid to small, small column operations aren't even farms anymore. Is it the hobbyist that has then a need for um, a side-by-side, -side, a loader tractor, and a chainsaw for their hunting property? I don't know. Yeah, no, I think what you'll see from a reinvention standpoint is that Timothy Hayfield might get turned into cranberries or he could get turned into blueberries or something like that. I mean, those high value crops like that tend to kind of start springing up, especially in places like Michigan where the diversity is so so high just because of the like effects that you get from Lake Michigan and everything else. I mean, the same thing that you see in California and even what we see out here a little bit. I mean, there's there's guys out here in Nebraska that are flirting with cotton and that's way far north in different hybrids that you see out here. But everybody's looking for the next best thing hemp is another great example of that. things bounce around all the time and it, those acres are going to change into something different they will some of those acres will turn change into something that's not got much i mean it really might be trees uh, it might yeah. just be wildlife some of those acres though i agree with you might find especially and that's where i think that there's the the thing that'll change in agriculture is some of these small acres and smaller operators there might still be 2 million farms. In fact, we might even see a resurgence with some of, if the back to nature movement has a, you know, any play on 50 acres, uh, mm -hmm. doing, uh, organic vegetables, blackberries, cranberries, blueberries, hemp, you know, whatever you, you talked about there. So how do you, how do you, how does 21st century, what does your company do for them? Because right now you don't even want to fool with those people. Are you going to? Not necessarily. I mean, we, we, uh, the hemp thing, I think is the best, closest example that I can have anything like that. And we're kind of right on the edge with our Colorado locations on the hemp part of uh, growing in Colorado. We, we've done some stuff and, and we're, we're learning and growing as fast as those guys that are hemp producers are growing too. I mean, I think if you put five hemp growers in the same room, every one of them are going to have five different ways of doing it. And all five of them aren't sure if their ways are going to even going to work. And there's a ton of kind of ramp up and things that are doing cross pollination between, for example, there's a, there's a weeder system. I can't remember what it's called. The name of the company is, but it's used in, in high value crops. And basically if you could kind of picture this, there's four or five seats on the back and there's two levers and you, and you move the levers back and forth 
and there's a uh, a four tiny little harrow looking thing down between that that goes between you said however wide your rows are on it and it just goes back and forth and it weeds between the rows well that's that's basically made for strawberry growers and tomato growers and those kind of things um, but they're using it in hemp because you know there's no gmo hemp yet where you can spray around up on it and well and that and i don't know if there ever will be because of a lot of things in fact i'm i'm thinking that uh, we might have seen our last genetically modified crop in terms of the glyphosate tolerance oh, yeah. aspect of gmo i think our last gmo uh, version of glyphosate tolerant crop has already been developed because I think glyphosate is going to be taken away from us based on all the lawsuits. What do you think about that? I think that there's going to be a fair amount of fallout when it comes to the glyphosate thing, just because the lawsuits that are out there, the amount of money that, that has been paid out in those lawsuits, the things that are there, it, it, it could be the asbestos, I guess, of, of our generation. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's right. And it, some of it won't even be based on facts. It'll just be based on lawsuits. Yeah. I told yeah. your crowd that. I believe I told your audience that. Uh, I see it going away only because there's going to be like, insurance companies, I'm told, are already starting to say, hey, do we want to fool with this? Yeah. Um, do we want to insure anybody that's in the business of gly using glyphosate? I made one other big, bold prediction since you're a machinery guy. Uh, I told your people that tillage equipment is going to be sold less five years from now and for certain 10 years from now than uh, it is right now. We're going to look back at all the fall tillage that we've done and the way I look back at the fact they used leeches for medical treatment. Now, some of your people didn't like my prediction on that, but I think tillage is not going to go away completely. It's going to be drastically reduced. There's going to be a lot less, just like there's a lot less moldboard plow demand right now. Your thoughts? Right. Um, I think we saw that with the uh, the no-till boom, right? There was five or six years there where tillage ended that spectrum where um, wasn't much, right? And then as a the roundup thing, if you started getting some chemical resistant weeds out there, we had to go back in and rip the ground back up and let it lay furrow again and let the no-till practices take back into that. You know, I think as long as machinery is uh, big and heavy and weighs multiple tons and we'll have to have some level of tillage out there um, just because of hard pans and compaction and everything else that goes along with that, there will be some level of, of tillage that goes in there. And as far as weed management goes, if you start taking away chemicals to kill weeds, um, you have to have some some level of weed management and what that is, whether that's in a wheat field, you know, you got kind of have some options. You're pretty limited on options you can do, but from a row crop perspective, there are other things you can look at, you know, like I said, with the, the tool I just described a little bit ago, but when corn gets six foot tall, you're going to have a hard time pulling that through the field. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so there's a lot of things that play into that. And um, I think from a robotics perspective, I mean, there's a lot of guys out there that are flirting with the idea of having a basically a robotic weed picker. You know what I mean? They have uh, Greenfield Robotics is a company that I've kind of watched. There's another one out there too, but they have a robot that just goes up and down the rows and has uh, it's got some artificial intelligence learning that it does. And it's learned what mare's tail looks like or, you know, water hemp or whatever it is. It pulls it out of the ground, doesn't spray anything on it, it just pulls the weed out of the ground and lays it like you would, you know, kids I would talk to would go, that was their summer job was to go out in the cornfield and pull weeds. You know, that stuff like that will come along. If that works and it does what it's supposed to and it's economically feasible and you see the yield increase and all those things that go along with that, that's an option. But it's if not, option. I have a hard time with not having a lot of tillage. No, I'm not going to say that there won't be a lot of tillage sold, but it's going to be, you still have some level of tillage that you're going to have to do, whether it's minimal or something. 
I, I see it. I see it becoming minimized because uh, soil is going to become more and more understood, and the molecular level, and also at the structural level, and we can prove that a lot of overtillage does uh, degrade soil structure. On to my next thought. I got my prediction. I want to hear yours since we're talking about the future, especially as it relates to uh, equipment. Autonomous equipment's coming, and it's going to be smaller than what we have right now. I say that because it can't get any bigger. Uh, our bridges and our roads are, are already too small for the stuff we have. I think we've peaked out on our size, and we're going to go autonomous and smaller. Your thought, Casey Seymour? Um, I, 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 have, I think I have a foot in both camps. Some days I'm, I'm with you that until we have a good way to fuel an autonomous vehicle, other than diesel fuel, um, maybe it's a hydrogen cell technology or battery technology or whatever it is, so it can run 24-7 and you don't have to keep going out there and giving it fuel. Until that happens, I think we're going to see machinery not necessarily get larger, but that's where the autonomy is going to be. The other thing with that, the reason I think that maybe some of the larger equipment is going to be around for a while as these farming operations get bigger or these cattle operations get bigger um, and they're looking at, I don't know, five or 600 acres a section, but they have 15 sections and, and they kind of take out the roads or whatever. I've seen guys do that where they might just have 5,000 acre fields and you just go a row crop field and it's just 5,000 acres of corn, continuous corn. And well, then you could, you could probably justify having a bigger machine um, of some level of autonomy and it's going be able to set itself and do all the fun stuff it's going to do but until you have a solid way for your seed tender and your machine that fills this fills up the seed tender and then and then the combine everything else that can run autonomously by itself with just people kind of monitoring what's going on i don't think it's going to get small that quick i think that's further out than the full-fledged driverless vehicle so you think which thing is further out? okay the full-fledged driverless vehicle is too far out there what happens in the meantime no no the small multiple like 10 combines in the field working next to each other that are the size of a pickup truck. I think that's 15 years away. Oh, okay. I mean, I have a bet with a guy I work with that in three years we're trading in a, a fully autonomous vehicle as a uh, huge piece of equipment. Right. Well, I think that you might be doing that. All right. I don't know about you, but uh, I'm ready. I'm ready to have final predictions since we talk about the future. You want to go first? Let me go first, or you got something else you want to make sure that your listeners hear from me? No, I, I don't really have anything else to, to add other than. But I'm ready to go into predictions, man. <laughs> you got more predictions? No, I just think here's what I think. Uh, as I as I sit back and look and see what happens, I think that there's a great opportunity for agriculture as we move forward. I think this is probably one of the most significant times to to live in this industry. I think there's going to be more non-farm kids move into an agricultural-based job than what anyone would ever imagine. You know, I would agree with that. I would agree with that because first off, we're running out of farm kids. Secondly, um, it's not going to be just in production stuff because I think we've got commodity production down and we've got it to where we can do it with an amazing efficiency with um, the innovation and technology we have. I see opportunities yep. in small. I see opportunities in niche. I see opportunities in downstream. Uh, how to take hemp and turn into CBD oil. Never would have even thought about that five years ago. Certainly not when I was a kid in FFA. I see uh, especially foodstuffs, as you talked about. You know, maybe it's not just cranberries because that still can be commoditized. Maybe it's a new product made of cranberries uh, that's coming out of those fields that were once Timothy Hay in uh, northern Michigan. Those are the kind of things I see because the ability to push natural and environmental uh, and small and niche will have a profit margin. 
Yep. No, I agree. And I think kind of back to my non-farm kid thing, The uh, and I'm one of those non-farm kids. I think when you look at what's going on, you could have someone that's going to show someone how to grow a crop that has never physically set a foot on a farm until the day they go out and talk to that first person about growing a crop. And they're going to know more about what's going on with that crop than the people that have grown it in, inside and out. So I, I just think that there's a, a, a dynamic shift that we're going to see happening and technology is driving that. And um, you know, it's great, great time to be in the farm equipment business or just to be in agriculture in general. Yeah, I think it's good. And again, a lot of people still think when we're talking about this, they think it means on the farming side and there's going to be that. But again, it's going to probably be opportunities are there for a large scale, but their opportunities are going to be there on a, on a value added specialty nature. But I think it's more on the downstream side. Uh, like I said, I had a guy on talking about hemp and I've had people on talk about, you know, specialized organic, things like that. Uh, I agree. Also, uh, I, I see really good opportunity for uh, a young person that runs it like a business. I mean, that's the one thing that I've been telling them. If you put me in front of a bunch of uh, young farmers and ranchers, I said, if I sit down with you, can you tell me about the balance sheet? Can you tell me about your money? Can you tell me about uh, your cost of production? Can you tell me about, okay, maybe you're not cost of, maybe you're in business, cost of goods sold. Can you tell me what your overhead looks like? What are you doing on your marketing and promotion? Those are the kinds of things. Uh, when I was an FFA 30 years ago, uh, 32 years ago, there was the kid that really thought it was important as to be in the shop and how, uh, how well they could, uh, maintain a tractor. Well, they got you for that. Yeah, no, I agree. I think there's two philosophies out there right now. You have the traditional farm mentality and those, those are the, uh, the grandparents. So they're, they're the guys that sit back there and they can, they can go out and raise a crop year in and year out. And it's a great crop. It's an amazing crop. And then you got the other guys out there that are business minded that aren't necessarily the best farmers in the world. And their bushels are nowhere near the guy over here that's just year in and year out, just knocking it out of the park. But that guy over here, that is the business minded person that's really sitting back and taking and look what's going on around him, what's opportunities are, what their growth strategy is going to be, those kind of things. That's the guy that's going to be there in 10 years. And yeah. Well, remember it's, it's dollars, it's dollars, it's dollars per, uh, per input. It's not uh, bushels per input, right? So it's a uh, profit, <laughs> profit matters. Uh, all right. What else you got for me? Casey, his name's Casey Seymour. He runs the moving iron summit. He hosts the moving iron podcast. He's been a client. He is a John Deere sales manager. He is in Western Nebraska. He's also a gardener and uh, he's a pretty good guy. I don't know what to tell you. I'm not a very good gardener. I didn't. I got like six ears of corn out of my out of my garden this year, so it didn't work well, you out know, too well. Let that be a lesson for you. You're not supposed to be growing corn in the desert. Western Nebraska is a damn desert. <laughs> Leave corn production to those of us where we actually get a thing called precipitation. Okay. I just wanted some sweet corn. That's all I wanted. Uh, you know what? Uh, fine. Contract with somebody in Indiana to ship it to you, and you guys stick with growing what you grow best, which we all know is rocks. Grow rocks out there, right? Sugar beets, baby. Get those sugar, sugar beets. Sugar beets and rocks. All right. Thanks for being here. Till next time. Um, I know it's his Moving Irons uh, podcast, and for me, it's the first ever swap cast done with the Business of Agriculture podcast. I thank you for being my guest. Thank you, Casey. I appreciate it, David. Take care of yourself, bud. Thanks. Till next time, it's the Business of Agriculture.